Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. More and more, patients are communicating with their healthcare providers using telephones or televisions. This is known as telemedicine. Sometimes it's necessary because the patients and the doctors live very far away from each other. Needless to say, it remains a curious growth in clinical medicine, and it also is bringing up some legal questions as well. Donna Vanderpool is the vice president of risk management for a large malpractice insurance organization, and she recently contributed a chapter on mental health care in a digital world. So she is obviously quite qualified to talk about this. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to share my thoughts on one of my favorite topics. It seems that a certain level of telemedicine already exists because people call their doctors with medication questions, sometimes emergencies, and and so on. So what is the issue? Is it the degree of telemedicine? Is it that is becoming the primary mechanism for communication between doctor and the patient? What's the issue? Yeah, I agree that intuitively, you know, telemedicine includes telephone calls to physicians where clinical issues are discussed. But like many states, Florida's medical and osteopathic boards have explicitly excluded audio-only telephone communication from the definition of telemedicine. And I certainly can't speak for the licensing boards, but my guess is that these telephone calls typically supplement but do not replace in-person visits. However, with the telemedicine practice, the remote treatment is the primary mechanism for the interaction, and that is it replaces what has traditionally been done in person. One of the most difficult things about telemedicine is that each state can have different rules. There was a case from Idaho earlier this year where the medical board punished a doctor for prescribing based on a telephone conversation. The doctor worked for a company, consulted a doctor, and after a one-time phone conversation, prescribed an antibiotic. The medical board characterized this telephone call as telemedicine and found she had violated the standard of care by prescribing a drug without a physical exam. It becomes a bit frightening for many doctors because the reality of our practices are that sometimes we do have to deal with our patients by telephone. It's just the reality of communicating with them weekends and so on. It frightens a lot of people. Should we be frightened about it? Not at all in the circumstances you just described. Most boards don't consider telephone communications as telemedicine. So we encourage the physicians to do the same thing they always do in terms of communicating with patients. That's a necessary part of practice. You want the patients to call you if there's a side effect with a medication or any type of clinical question. So the telephones really are fine. And again, most states don't call that telemedicine. Is there a fear that Like several years ago, people were going online, never seeing the doctor, filling out a questionnaire and getting medication. Right. That is the one area where there actually is consistency. Those online questionnaires, which resulted in a physician prescribing a medication, the states jumped on that and they jumped on it unanimously. And Florida, you know, kind of has typical language and just says that does not meet the standard of care. That cannot be done. And that's the one area where all the states are consistent. They've all made that very clear. That's not to be done. Let's go backwards a little bit. Can you talk a little bit about some of the geographical pressures, the socioeconomic pressures that are forcing telemedicine to become much more of a common practice? Yeah, I think it all goes back to, you know, the, the kind of the history. I mean, the very beginning of telemedicine was really developed by military space programs and governmental organizations. I think the first psychiatric application of telemedicine was back in 1959, and it was the use of a two-way closed-circuit 
microwave television. And it was certainly done due to geography because what it did is it linked the Nebraska Psychiatric Institute of Omaha with the state mental hospital, which was more than 200 miles away, to provide consultations, education, training, and research. So it's definitely the geography has led to the technology being so well-received. And, you know, those technology develops the effectiveness of it getting just better and better. Technology is just developing now at at record-breaking speeds, and it's very impressive, to be honest. Let's talk about what it is that entails a telemedicine consultation. There are two levels here. There's when a doctor talks to a doctor, and the doctor's explaining the case to the other doctor. That's teleconsultation, if we can use the word, not necessarily telemedicine You're exactly right. I think that there is a carve-out in almost all of the state laws that I've seen for consultation across state lines. And I think the reason for this is the out-of-state physician is not treating the other physician's patient. With a consult, the physician seeking the consult is free to accept or completely reject the advice of the consultant. So it's a physician discussion, not patient treatment, and medical boards are all in favor, as am I, of consults. There's the whole notion of the doctor has to be licensed in the state in which the patient is sitting. Is that universal throughout the United States now? Yes. The boards are finally, the boards have been reluctant to really regulate telemedicine because it's an unknown area and the technology is just advancing way faster than the law is. But one thing changed that recently, and that's the Federation of State Medical Boards, which is the like the trade association for all of the state medical and osteopathic boards. They got together and finalized their model guidelines for telemedicine. So then the individual state boards can take it back to their state and adopt it as is, make minor tweaks. So that is starting now. We're starting to see once the model came out, two states are enacting it, usually very similar to the model. But prior, you know, you are dealing with the states are saying, yes, you need to be have some type of license if you're going to be rendering services to a patient physically located in our state. The states, most of them will require a full license. A couple of states have what's called a special purpose license for telemedicine. And I think there's one state currently that simply requires registration, but it's some type of check-in with the board. The board wants control over what's going on on patients in their state. So right now, I believe all 50 states in D.C. have some type of requirement for some type of license or registration. A common problem, very common problem, is that we're treating a college student, maybe attention deficit disorder, may need one of the psychostimulants, goes to college in, I'm in Florida, they go to college in Texas. Mm-hmm. And they want to check in with me. Yeah, I think that the correct answer is you would check with the board where the patient is physically located. The boards are becoming very responsive to those questions, and it's an email, and they'll respond and say yes or no. I know that not everyone is doing that. I know it's cumbersome, but that's the technical answer. If you think about it, though, there is a difference between the patient who just calls in once a month to say, doing great, thanks, Doc see you at Christmas break versus the ones that are getting an actual remote treatment session once a week, once a month. That's really where the boards typically say you're treating in our state, you're going to need to be licensed. I know many verbal psychotherapists and good people. They're very good. And they have patients that move away and they continue with their treatment relationship. And they may have not seen them in six months or a year. It sounds like that is not necessarily legal. Correct. They would need to check with the boards. 
it could be that, you know, if they tell the board, you know, I'm not prescribing, this is a known patient to me, um, you know, I can't, again, I can't speak for the boards, um, but most will probably want some type of licensure in the patient state. One of the other questions that keeps coming up, and you've mentioned the term several times that technology is changing, is security, confidentiality. I mean, you and I are talking by telephone. We assume it's pretty secure. Right. No one's listening in on us. What's the issue with telemedicine? It sounds like some of the programs and secure things, they become very expensive, very complicated. What seems to be the issue? The issue is the cheaper ways to do telemedicine are not necessarily secure. If there is, without naming any names, there is a technology that is free, you have to check, are they storing patient information? If a vendor stores any patient information, which is certainly the video portion of it, the audio portion of it, if they store it under HIPAA, they are a business associate. And business associates are required to provide the physician using it with a business associate agreement where the company promises to maintain the security, confidentiality, and integrity of that patient information. Well, these free vendors are not, they are storing it, and that's written in their privacy policy, but they're not, uh, certainly not doing business associates, and they're not going to comply with the security rule. They're not going to do audit trails to see if anyone has accessed inappropriately the information. It's back to, you know, these are professional activities, and Free may not be sufficient to meet your professional obligations for security, so it may be that you need to, as a business expense, use one of the vendors that are set up specifically for telemedicine. They understand HIPAA. They understand how to help you meet your obligations under HIPAA. They know their obligations under HIPAA, and it does cost. It can be you know, a monthly charge. Something like Skype is great when you're dealing with visiting with your your grandmother or your kid at college. But in terms of in a professional practice where confidentiality is just absolutely key and there are significant consequences, not just under HIPAA, but under state confidentiality laws, that may not be sufficient. And it's interesting, the psychology boards, I was actually doing research for another chapter in a different textbook, the psychology boards are a little more vocal about certain technologies. And just to give a real quick example, the West Virginia Board of Psychology Examiners, they have a policy statement called Telepsychology and Skype. And the board notes a lack of encryption means Skype is not a confidential means of communication and stated providing telepsychology on unencrypted sites is ill-advised. So we're starting to see more and more guidance and expectations from the boards right now on choice of technology, more so from the psychology boards. Interesting. It brings up another topic. Do insurance companies pay for telemedicine? Well, Medicare will pay for certain telemedicine services, but really they're currently limited to patients that are in a medical facility, not their home, and typically in specific rural geographic areas. I know that HHS recently finalized a rule that expanded some coverage, and I think psychotherapy has some coverage. Most states' Medicaid programs actually will provide reimbursement for telemedicine services, and private payers typically follow the government payment guidelines. The one thing that I thought was very interesting is that some insurers, such as WellPoint and Aetna, they're actually encouraging their members to be seen online. 
these insurers are joining with telemedicine companies such as Teladoc to offer virtual visits for their members. To me, as a psychiatrist, and I understand the reality of sometimes one cannot have the patient here in the office, but how much does that interfere with the real interaction between patient and doctor? All the other things that maybe it speaks to my age that are so essential to an interaction, to a relationship. Has that become a legal issue as well? Not yet. This is very, very, very new. I agree with you. I, I would be horrified if these insurance companies were expecting psychiatric patients to be supplemented, you know, on the weekends or when they can't reach their psychiatrist with an online visit. I think that these are more for more medical issues, easy to solve medical issues. But again, I mean, you are bringing in another provider. Now you've got two sets of records for this one patient. How is it going to get back to that patient's PCP that they visited some teledoctor practitioner at the request of Aetna? I was very surprised to see that because to me, again, you're kind of splitting the care, which I'm not a fan of. And I agree with you. Many times have been notified that patients went to these walk-in emergency clinics and they serve a purpose. They serve a very good purpose. But by the same token, it fragments the the file, so to speak. So you have spent, I don't know how many years, but I'm going to say many years in the medical <laughs> malpractice arena, particularly in psychiatry. Are you beginning to see any problems from your perspective, the perspective of your industry as telemedicine develops in psychiatry? From the insurance perspective, and I can only really speak from, from my company, we support telemedicine done well, follow the rules. Um, we think it serves a need. It can be very, very useful in psychiatry. We, however, are a national program. So for us, it doesn't matter where the patient is located because obviously if there was going to be a lawsuit, the patient would sue in their home state. But the AMA, when they put out their guidelines, they specifically advise doctors to check with their malpractice insurance company to see if they will cover services deemed to be out of state. So that's one thing that everyone should check just to make sure that they've got that coverage that they're counting on through their insurance carrier. One of the hot topics, shall we say, in psychiatry is that frequently emergency rooms do not have access to a psychiatrist on call. And it's the proverbial Saturday afternoon, nobody's around, somebody comes in, they're psychotic. And so they do the consultation by television with a psychiatrist somewhere else. I, I, so you can hear in my voice, I don't know if this is good or bad because, again, I'm of an older school. If it's at all possible, I want to be in the same room with the person to feel the vibrations, so to speak. Have problems developed with this? Is this a trend that it's going to grow out of necessity? I'd like your thoughts. We are starting to see that this is the remote emergency room psychiatric services. There are more and more providers that are following that model. Now, I will tell you as a risk manager, my concerns are exactly the same as yours. From a liability perspective, I think it is the least risky when the psychiatrist is able to evaluate the person in the physical presence of that person. So if that model can be sustained by the hospital and by the psychiatrist on staff, that's fantastic. 
But what I'm hearing is what you let in those facts to this question. Hospitals don't want to pay for psychiatrists to be available. They've pursued other arrangements for psychiatric coverage. I get the calls, and in one, it was the social worker conducts an evaluation and then discusses it by phone with the on-call psychiatrist who doesn't need to be physically available. Well, you know, I think that's risky for the psychiatrist who's going to be responsible as if he or she had gone in and evaluated the patient. So in that factual situation, where it's either a social, it's a social worker doing the evaluation and the psychiatrist relies on that. In that situation, I think a remote evaluation by a psychiatrist would probably be preferable from a liability perspective. And if we're talking about a potential Baker Act case, I'm aware of some areas where there could be significant weights for a psychiatrist to appear to do the in-person evaluation. Another situation from my perspective the lack of availability of the psychiatrist, where a remote psychiatric evaluation would be preferable from my perspective. But you are absolutely right. If the resources are there, I'm, I'm old school as well. That is the least risky model. It just seems that with the expansion in coverage, doctors are busier than ever. There's always been shortages of psychiatrists in many areas. You have to deal with those realities as well. And the remote psychiatric evaluation may be a good solution in some of those factual situations. I agree. And for those who are not in Florida, you use the term Baker Act, and that is our term for an involuntary psychiatric hospitalization. It meets very tight criteria, but nonetheless, it is involuntary. I was looking at some of the statistics. There seems to be approximately 200 telemedicine networks in the United States that roughly a million Americans are using remote cardiac monitors. The VA hospital is endorsing lots of remote consultations using telemedicine. Clearly, it's something we have to contend with. It is here. It is our mechanism of communicating. Do you see it developing differently in the next five or 10 years? I'm, I'm asking you to prognosticate, of course, but <laughs> what, you know, from your position, what, where are we going to be in 10 years regarding all of this? If you can even answer that question. Well, I'll take a stab at it. Looking into my crystal ball, I think we're going to see more and more of it. I think specifically telepsychiatry is going to grow. I think that there are going to be more advances in technology that's going to allow for improved patient assessment. I think that the technology is getting cheaper and cheaper. The value of consultation from remote experts, I never want to minimize that. I think that's a very important use, not just from a liability perspective, but patient safety and good clinical care. Again, I mentioned briefly with the increase in insurance coverage under the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, there was a shortage of psychiatrists before all of these increased populations have insurance. So who's going to care for all of these patients with new insurance? The shortage of psychiatrists, including subspecialists, the child and adolescent psychiatrists, they were really at a shortage already, and that's just going to continue to grow. And I also think, and this saddens me a bit, but the doctors that I talk to, they're getting, some of them are getting fed up with practice issues, increased regulation, decreased reimbursement. Telemedicine may be an attractive business model to those physicians, not just psychiatrists, who again are a bit fed up with the state of practice. We see a different aspect of medicine evolving. It's not the actual biochemistry and surgical procedures, but it's the way we communicate with our patients, something that probably 100 years ago would never have even been thought of as something that would require this much time and attention. 
Donna Vanderpool is a lawyer, she's vice president of the risk management division of a malpractice insurance company, and she has written about this topic. Thank you so much. It's it's just something that we have to keep a close eye on and think about. Thank you. Thank you again. My pleasure.